You're listening to DevOps and Docker Talk, and I'm your host, Brett Fisher. I'm a cloud-native DevOps course creator, consultant, and manager of this growing community on cloud-native DevOps. This podcast is an edited-down, audio-only version of my YouTube live show, which airs on Thursdays at brett.live. This podcast and all the free stuff I create is made possible by my supporting members. Thank you all so much for your continued patronage. There are well over 100 of you buying me a coffee every month, which makes that just 1% of the people that read, watch, or listen to this content every month. I'm hoping we can double that to 2% this year. And as they say, membership has its privileges. So you can find out how to support this show, my cloud native training, and our DevOps community at brettfisher.com. In this episode, my fellow Docker captain and friend, Nuno Ducarmo, joins us to keep us up to date on Windows WSL and running local containers on Windows. Nuno is a tech writer for SUSE, the company that bought Rancher, and also a Sivo ambassador and a Microsoft MVP. I've had him on the show before because the more you use the Windows subsystem for Linux and Docker Desktop, the more you'll want to use WSL, and then that's where you start to wonder. Questions come up like, where are all the Linux files stored? Is this a VM that I can manage and the CPU and memory resources for that? How do I back up my files in WSL? How do I get from my host Windows Explorer into the Linux file system? How do I do that from the command line? And when I'm in the Linux shell, how do I get back to my Windows file system from it? Well, Nuno helps answer all these questions and more in this live show update. That was one half Q&A and one half demos of various ways to run containers on Windows and configuring things in WSL. This includes Linux containers, Windows containers, WebAssembly containers, and a few differences between Docker Desktop, Rancher Desktop, and now Podman Desktop. As always, this podcast skips the demos that won't make sense in an audio-only form, but you can check the show notes in your podcast player for links to the original YouTube live stream. So please enjoy this chat with Nuno Ducarmo of SUSE. Hello, my name is Brett. I welcome you to the show. You're here to learn something new, mostly in DevOps and containers, which is all I've been talking about for seven years. I was actually reflecting on the Docker birthday that's about to hit next month. We're gonna have 10 year Docker birthday next month. It's gonna be pretty exciting. We like round numbers as humans. So I was just reflecting on what I was doing with Docker almost 10 years ago and wrote a little quote for Eric Smalling, who may or may not be here today, but Docker Captain Eric has got a newsletter and he's going to have some quotes from people that were using Docker in its early days and what it was like to be on the, on the edge, on the bleeding tip edge of container stuff. So that's coming up next month. We don't really have a plan, but we should have a plan for Docker and the new V23 release, the new big Docker, Docker engine announcement, and then also the Docker birthday. We should probably do something. So stay tuned. Let's get to the show. Welcome to the show, Nuno Ducarmo, who is a Docker captain, a technical writer for SUSE. He, he, you were, you were at Rancher, right? Hello. Hi everyone. Hi Brett. Thank you for having me. And yes, I'm a tech writer at SUSE to spell it correctly, even though it's weird for me, not being <laughs> an English speaker, but yeah, SUSE, a rancher. For those of you that haven't noticed in the last couple of years, Rancher was acquired by SUSE. And SUSE has been around a while. They're one of the major enterprise Linux distros that I see out there in the wild when I'm, especially when I'm working with European countries or companies that are in Europe, they prefer that. And so it's an interesting partnership and I've always been huge fans of Rancher. And now you, you have the insights on what's going on there. So we won't talk about ton about Rancher today, but we are going to talk about Rancher mm -hmm. Desktop where if you haven't seen Nuno on the show before, he's basically like, I'm the Mac guy. He's the Windows <laughs> guy. Like he knows so much WSL, like day-to-day -day development on Windows. Really, a lot of this starts with WSL. I feel like it's hard to even talk about mm -hmm. developing on Windows today without WSL. Like it's, it hasn't been around that long. We've talked about it a dozen times on this show. I mean, we probably had a dozen episodes dedicated to WSL. Which is good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a lot to talk about. I mean, if we go back in history, right, we had WSL, mm -hmm. well, I guess we're calling it WSL 1 now. 1, yeah. Yeah. And that was, 
a really good start and it had limits, but it met a lot of needs. We were able to use it. And then Docker couldn't necessarily use it, but then WSL2 yeah. showed up mm-hmm. and everything changed. And now oh, yeah. it's it's sad for me on Mac because I went to Mac because it was more Unix-like, like a, over a decade ago, right? I was on Windows back in the Windows 7 days and I thought, man, this Mac, you know, with this BSD-based kernel, I'm going to go over there. That's where all the developers seem to be. And now it turns out that Windows is actually a better place to be. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, thanks to WSL, we will enter just a little bit. Like you said, we need to understand first what is WSL and how it enabled Microsoft Windows to finally be really on par with Mac nowadays. If not superior, but I'll let you decide. But uh, yeah, WSL 1, like you said, was like a translation layer. So it had its limits. I won't enter too much. We talked about in length, I think, the the past episode already. But very shortly, it's like a translation layer. So at some point in time, you will met like roadblocks that are walls, actually. And you cannot just overcome them. So during that time, Microsoft was working on Linux containers on Windows, actually, LCAL, for the ones who remember them. And that was using technology of a sort of micro VM. So it's Hyper-V VMs, but like headless. And the technology was so good developed and was really working fine that they brought like the idea of trying to have like a Linux user land fully on, on Windows and this time with the VM. So. The moment you reach a VM, so there's still potentially some limitations, at least some performances that are, let's say, impactful for quite some people. I will tell the truth. Nothing is perfect, right? But WSL2 brought these like user lands and Linux really VM feeling to Windows. That's really what WSL2 did. And from there, like the solutions that are based now on WSL2 and the solutions that we can implement directly on it also are just going, growing day by day, really. Yeah. When we, we met on this show, we were talking earlier, like a year and a half ago, I think, I think Windows 11 was relatively new and we were talking about some of the new things like, the, you know, basically Linux GUIs on Windows and stuff like that, that just honestly was blowing my mind and still does about the the ability for you to transcend the OS barrier with GUIs is is really cool stuff. And there are still people out there that are using Hyper-V mode or are using Vagrant VMs and yep. not not to like preach or be, you know, bang the table soapbox moment. But if there's something about, I would love to hear from people that like there's, if there's a reason that they've tried to adopt WSL2 somehow didn't, wasn't able to use it. And they're still using sort mm-hmm. of full VM. So I would consider sort of legacy virtualization on Windows desktop. I, w- I would love to hear from those people. I actually had a great question for you. What are the limits or max capabilities of Linux running in WSL? What is the major difference of using it in a VM box versus WSL? Okay. So it's a micro VM integrated in Windows. This means that you will have networking non-capabilities, I'll turn it the other way, from the Hyper-V network. And right now they are trying to fix things there. Also the cross, let's say the cross file system, it's good, but it's slow as we speak. Like if I try to write from WSL on Windows file system, I can, but it will be slow. Like if you just do like a git clone, it will take you Potentially, if your repo is big, like ages, literally. Yeah. So the advantages of a VM nowadays, it's really isolated. It's fully isolated. Second, the kernel mechanics are different with WSL and a VM. This means that if I want to load, and that's my case, and actually one of my later blogs, I explained that, but it's like, If you want to load modules on Linux nowadays, you dynamically load them. That's it. Okay. In a VM, you just load your modules, you mod probe, whatever, and it's, it's there. 
With WSL, the kernel resides outside kind of the VM. So the VM loads it, but it loads it in a way that if you want modules inside your WSL instance, you need to compile a kernel. So I've been there, like my, all my Linux friends that know that I'm Windows guy, yeah. they never thought that I will tell them I'm compiling a kernel once a month, let's say, or something like that for tests. They, they're just laughing at me, seriously. <laughs> but that's we, the way currently. Yeah, we're just jealous because, uh, you know, Windows and Mac people can't compile their kernels. So, you know, yeah, exactly. exactly. Cool I, I feel so sorry for you. Yeah, like having time, not waiting on a kernel that he's building for 10 to hey, 20 look, minutes. 20 yeah. years ago, it was the only way I could ever make Linux work or free BSD or anything. So uh, it's just amazing now that we have these options that we don't have to compile. So it's pretty great. Yeah. Um, anyway, so yeah. that's this mechanism of really the kernel behavior or how you interact with the kernel. But once you know that, well, a VM will take RAM more than WSL because again, it's a micro VM and it's kind of like loading inside the, the RAM that you have and still you can like put limits, which is good. Like initially you didn't have any limits so that it was not a good idea very fast. So now there's limits. The CPUs, you are using all the CPUs available also because it's again, lo call loading with your Windows kernel. So you are like leveraging your material. And of course, now there's the GPU. So you don't see like the GPU per se. So if you do like a list LSPCI, sorry, you will not see your NVIDIA or your AMD card. However, if you run like NVIDIA SMI, that checks like for the workloads and what's it's, it's available, it will show you that you have that, that you have like NVIDIA working behind the scenes and right. NVIDIA is working with Microsoft, with the drivers and everything. So, right. so there's some magic there to accommodate oh, yeah. for the WSL. Not, I hate to use the word emulation because that maybe isn't the right word, but yeah. I, I, see, I see that like a, a kind of pass through, but okay. for just the workload. So you yeah. send your workload your AI workload, your ML workload, because that's the goal here, right? And you send it and it normally takes it on your GPU. But that's really like, what do you prefer? If you need isolation, go for a VM, like full isolation, go for a VM. If you want to be quick and you want interoperability between the two systems, between the two user lands, right? Windows and Linux, go for WSL2. Yeah, I think... One of the things that we all had, right? Like when we were all running VMs and we were running Linux VMs and stuff inside of our, whether it was Vagrant via VirtualBox or VMware Workstation or whatever, we all had our habits. And, you know, some of us, like I knew a team that, you know, up until just recently was still deploying a Vagrant VM to their Windows developers. And they would do all development inside the VM file system. So when we started talking about file systems, you know, it is a little tricky because now what we're talking about is you have your host file system, you have your VM file system, and then you have the file system in your container. So there's all these infinite layers down with the turtles all the way down or whatever. And in their case, they essentially were using special IDEs or ways for the IDE to get into the VM so that they were working in the file system of the VM. But it was like if they had a file on their host and they wanted to get it in there, it was arduous, right? It was complicated. It was confusing to figure out, okay, where, what directory do I need to put it in so that I can then see it? And then I need to move it from inside the thing. And we, as you mentioned earlier, anytime you have files on one file system and you're bind mounting or network sharing or socket sharing or however the files are actually getting into the other OS, if you're sharing these files across OS, there's always a huge hit in performance. I have students that, you know, they never noticed this because maybe they have small projects, they're doing bind mounts, maybe they're doing bind mounts <laughs> from the Windows file system into the Linux VM for WSL, or they're on Mac like me, and they're and that's all we have. We can bind mount our source code from our host machine into the container. Right. And there's always a performance penalty there, but not everyone sees it. I would say honestly, probably ten only ten or twenty percent see that such a huge performance hit that they're they're like, Okay, I need to fix this problem. And that usually leads them down the road of, oh, I need to probably start putting my code in this VM that I'm running, right? Like the, in, whether it's the, the VM workstation OS or it's WSL2. So this kind of leads me to like, 
the PSA or the the soapbox moment for you of like, let's make sure that we're setting up ourselves if we're using WSL to yeah. let's set That's, ourselves up for success. And how do you do that? One thing that you said, it was like how to start well with WSL and mm -hmm. on Windows. And the major issue that people do, for example, is to, to use WSL to write their projects or to use WSL and their project file system, their project directories are on the Windows side. So oh, yeah. WSL, it's not installed with Windows by default, but you can enable it. I think there was a question about security. I've worked with security teams, security companies. They're all using WSL too. That is their default modus operandi. Basically, that's how they get things done. So I personally, as, as someone who works in DevSecOps, I don't have concerns about WSL because it is very locked down and minimal. It is not necessarily a isolated VM in the case that you can make a truly isolated VMware workstation thing where it's literally just like there is no shared file system. There is no shared memory. It is dedicated, but I consider it an extension of your Windows file system and an extension of your Windows host. So you can install it through the store and you can choose your distributions. You can have multiple distributions. And I'm a little fuzzy on the details of how you would like share files between those distros because don't they like all they all have their own file system mounts, right? So they, if you had one or the yes. other, if you had an Ubuntu and Yes, a, but they do have one in common. Good question. So yeah, this is less than one second. This is two seconds. The same Git clone on the two different file systems, one on Windows and one local. Right. The local one is is VHDX actually, so it's it's Hyper-V yeah, Hyper compatible, and that's why it's it's quite fast when you work there. So, your point was that the tooling now before was really complicated, but nowadays the tooling is quite good. Okay, so Windows executables are accessible from this Linux shell, and what's interesting is that if someone oh, yeah. goes back in time, we actually had. Like 20 years ago, I don't know, but we had Windows, it was something like, it was called the Linux subsystem for Windows or something like that. And it was actually Linux tools built as Windows binaries. And you were able to use a POSIX-like shell environment, like Bash or whatever, inside right. a Windows server. But it was a really weird environment because it was a Windows file system, as NTFS, so you were getting... You weren't seeing, it was pretending okay. to be in, Lin in Linux, but it wasn't. It was still running Windows binaries on a Windows kernel. And this is totally different. This is... I get to do yeah. both. I can run executables from here and it essentially passes them over to Windows execution. Or if I run Linux built binaries, like a curl or something, mm -hmm. it's going to run it on the Linux kernel and it just kind of all works. I think that's one of the the points of why WSL exists is that it's more than just a VM with a Linux kernel that you can get a shell into. There yeah, totally. And if you've ever yeah. worked in a team that had non-Windows developers, like this was a problem on day one, right? Like oh, yeah. someone someone on a Mac or on a, Win on a Linux desktop would create a file in the repo and then someone on Windows, it would look different to them in their editor and then they would save a new file and then it would really be messed up for the Mac people. So luckily we have the Git, we have a Git config file that we can all sort of set for Git to, to manage line endings for us or use an editor config. If anyone doesn't know about that, editor config dot org, I think, is also another great way to manage that. That's a great point, though, because it really is Linux and it really is Linux tools. So exactly. So before we talk about containers, because we are here for that, right? Two things. So the tooling, what we were saying. So before you will maybe do a SSH, if your tool will permit you to create like the SSH to a remote server and try to connect there right from there directly, you have limitations most of the time. So now the tooling like Visual Studio Codes and not only like Go JetBrains, the suite JetBrains, GoLand and the Java one, the bigger one, Jet, JetBrains. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're a flagship editor. It can connect directly to WSL. So it's WSL aware. Yeah, that's a good point. Like you're saying all the edit, all the major editors support the WSL environment. Because ideally you want your editor, I mean, what we're really saying here is you want your editors ideally to be Windows editors. So you get that full Windows GUI experience and the richness of that. 
but you probably want your code to be in WSL on that file system. Someone was asking essentially, what about the WSL file system? And like you said, this is all sitting in a VHDX, is that right? Which is exactly, exactly. Which is, if you didn't know this, if you ran a server farm of Windows servers, VHDX, and before we had just VHD files, this is essentially what all virtual machines on servers and production are all using. It's a very performant file system storage in a file, and you can mount it on Windows, even in Server Manager or any of the, some of the other, the Disk Manager GUI. You can actually mount these files as real file systems in Windows. There's even a thing where you can boot to one without, there's a lot of cool stuff you can do with them, but it's, this is a standard file format. It is all just encapsulated essentially. So you don't have some sort of weird proprietary um, environment. It's not literally creating another partition on your hard drive, right? It's exactly. Just, it's it, on your Windows host. This all just looks like a single file, but when you get into Linux in the WSL, it's all there. Yeah. So from Explorer, I don't know if you saw, like you have now Windows 11 at least and Windows 10, I think they, they brought it also. You will have this menu Linux that will appear and yeah. then it will showcase all the distros. And here that's important to mention that it's not all the distros that are seen by terminal, by the Windows terminal. That's all the distros that are seen by WSL. And I will, I will show you the, the difference. I could go to Ubuntu and to the, my own, and then I could open again the file that I, I created before with Notepad. Yeah, and so that's way more convenient this... than before. <laughs> There's these two ways going back and forth and uh, let's, uh, I will try to put some expert tips then, uh, um, here, if you click on, uh, on the bar, that's really important. You can actually call anything from WSL localhost. So if I go back to my shell, but this time PowerShell, I can okay. actually so we're on the host. CD, yep. yeah, my WSL localhost. And I will call Ubuntu and then, okay, it loads, I guess, like a, um, a module, yeah, the file system module. And now you can see that I'm inside Ubuntu. And if I go to home, so it's funny because I'm doing tab and it's giving me like the normal backslashes from windows, yeah. but I'm <laughs> really inside a Linux file system. So yeah, at some point in time. You have to be really careful because you can get lost very fast with the tooling. But uh, the goal is this one, like we are doing ourselves. It's kind of WSL the hard way. But the thing is I'm writing from a Windows perspective. So from a, a Windows point of view, what I really want is that my tooling connects and would run directly. So I'm running PowerShell. But I want to, I, I mean, I started it from WSL, so I want to be on WSL. So gladly for us, they created, and they, it's Microsoft, they created some plugins, add-ons, and I can run my WSL add-on. And we recommend to use a WSL window, exactly. So I can reopen my folder, but in WSL mode. And from there. It installs like the VS Code server. So the backend is now running on WSL and my frontend is the frontend that I know. And again, is no more backslash, backslash, whatever. No, now I am in the mindset of WSL of Linux. So I'm working like if I was working on Linux. And if I open again the, sh the shell, now I have my shell. Now I feel like I'm really working in a singular mode. I don't have to think about past completions, shells or whatever. No, I'm on WSL, my tooling, my UI is Windows, but my backend is connected to a backend running on WSL. Yeah. And, and this is super great too, because this, I think this is a common struggling point for people that are getting into Docker as a way, surprisingly, a, lot, a number of people take my course on Docker and they're new to VS Code. They're also new to WSL. So there's a whole lot of learning all at the same time, right? And one exactly. of the challenges is all this stuff works so well together, but if you veer outside of this ideal solution, let's call it, 
it can get a little weird and a little funky and a little confusing. Yes. So in general, if you're coming from Windows 7, if you're coming from the older setups and you're now on Windows 10, Windows 11, you're enabling WSL2, you maybe download Ubuntu or OpenSUSE, you've done one of those things. And now you have this, you know, and you installed Windows Terminal. If you're on Windows 10, if it's on Windows 11, I think it's already there. But Windows Terminal is that GUI. It's going to show you automatically your WSL options, which different distros you've installed. And then when you first run that, it's going to ask you for a username and password because that's the real, that's going to be your Linux account because it's a real Linux account <laughs> on a real Linux kernel. But there's no SSH involved. You don't need to bridge the file systems or run PowerShell on your local machine. And like, you can do that. But really the ideal setup, and this is what I teach in my courses, like you're saying, is what we all want to get to is you open up WSL, the shell, like a bash shell in Ubuntu, again, one of these different distros, you clone your repos in there in Linux. And then you start, like you said, you can just type code space dot, and it will open exactly. up that directory in your Windows GUI, not in a Linux GUI, but in your Windows GUI with all the great Windows advantages. And it's, and with code, and like you said, I think JetBrains, the other ones all sort of do this now too, they understand WSL. So it seems like you're running on a Linux, it's almost like you're this weird hybrid of all the advantages of Linux desktops, all the advantages of a Windows desktop. And if you do that mode, you get the best file system performance, you get the wonderful GUI, you, and you're, you're saying it's running this magical little WSL VS Code yeah. server in the background on Linux. By the way, this is the and same way we can all do this same setup with a code space on GitHub or a remote dev server. VS Code has that. Of course, I think all the other ones, all the other big IDEs have that as well now. But heck, even if you're a Vim user, you still have Tmux. Like you can still use Tmux over SSH and still have remote dev environments. But th this is, there's a lot going on here. So I don't want to trivialize for those that are new to this. Before we go to the next thing, I want to get through some of these questions because is there a reason to SSH into WSL? Is that even a thing? Why would you do that? So yes, we have, to, again, we have to be real aware. So the more we scratch the surface, the bigger the old is, of course. <laughs> and here is that Windows may be a little known fact for people that are not working on Windows, but if you are in developer mode on Windows, you, Windows by default will run SSH server in the backend for potentially some services that it needs. And you can, if you, you can configure it and run it. So the port 22 is by default used. Sometimes for the tools that was previously like when we didn't have this connectivity of having VS code that can connect remotely, JetBrains that can connect remotely, you can run a SSH server on your WSL distro. And what it does, it's like WSL has this interoperability also in ports. So it will forward the ports that are open by default. You can stop that, but by default, it will share the port with the local host of Windows. So if you have some setup going on, you can easily or more easily connect to your, let's say Windows machine, for example, through SSH on WSL. So you SSH your Windows machine, but what it does is like you are SSHing to the Windows machine WSL distro that is running the SSH server. And now I think it's a bit better, but at some point in time, configuring SSH on Windows server, for example, was kind of difficult because you have to run scripts to adapt permissions and everything. So the easy way will be to go directly with SSH on, on, on WSL indeed. Again, you can run it, but you yeah. just have to be really careful because it's one VM. How oh, I didn't explain it, but I really want to address the point because it's already. Yeah, it's true. It is one kernel, right? The, all these different. Yeah, ones exactly. You're running so is, that's one yes. VM. Because that was a good question. I saw that question too. How do you make a fresh WSL VM essentially? Whenever you call WSL, uh, now I'm listing verbose, and here is like all uh, the WSL distro that are running. At the end of the day, there's only one machine running. So I have Ubuntu and if I'm a bad guy, which I am, and simply shut down WSL, Tumbleweed got destroyed and Ubuntu got also disconnected, destroyed if you want. 
So this means that behind the scenes, there's only one. So again, WSL-L-V, so Ubuntu is running again. So if I use a tool called HCSDAG, which is like, um, I think it's like Hyper-V control system, diagnostics or whatever it stands for. And I do a list, you can see the micro VM running behind the scenes, but you can only see one. Yeah. Still just a single VM. Yeah, cool. And that's something uh, that happened years ago, by the way, for those that are catching up from like the early days of Windows 10 WSL, is that they removed the need to have Hyper-V even installed in order to get your WSL 2 setup going. And that's how we can have like Windows 10, Windows 11 Home, and these various additions that don't come with the full enterprise Hyper-V exactly. setup. We don't actually need that anymore. So I had to change all my course videos because I used to have to tell people, if you're on a home <laughs> version, this is how you're going to have to do it. And you're going to have to use, you know, if you remember Docker Toolbox back in the day. And, but now we, now Docker Desktop works everywhere. It works on every edition, all versions. And we get all these features in WSL2 regardless. Yeah. Yep. The magic here is this one, Virtual Machine Platform. And that's the what they ported to the Windows Home editions. Nice. So you still yeah. have virtualization, but it's like very lightweight virtualization. You will not have Hyper-V, for example, there. Yeah. What does mount show in Linux if you were to run the mount command? Does it does it oh, yeah, show yeah, all yeah. the Windows the Windows file system and stuff like yes. that? Good question. Shows a lot. Okay. So, yeah. uh, well, it is, there are containers all, involved. So it's always a lot. Yeah. So first of all, the C group is hybrid, which is no good, but soon we will have C group two. Finally, I'm pushing for it. So you can count on me. Then there's quite a lot of things. It's MNT double cell G, which is for, stands for graphic. That's where all the magic occurs for the GUI stuff. Okay. And then. We have all the normal mounts and we have the shared drive, like, like I called you, like the share mount, which is MNT WSL, all the, these toolings like Docker desktop, Rancher desktop, whatever that wants some tooling that needs to be shared across all, like say the socket, for example, you don't want the socket on like configure a socket on every distro. So you put the socket in the shared mount and then you just link it or tunnel it or whatever they do. So um, Rich has a question. He works in WSL2 all day okay. using a single Ubuntu distro mm -hmm. with VS Code. I save all data to Linux user home. What is the best advice to back up data and run multiple distros move? Right. So I had a friend, Jason Shiprek. I don't know how to pronounce his name, but he is working for Solo now. And he actually destroyed is VM, is the uh, distro. So first thing first is like, if you have Ubuntu by canonical directly from the store, it will be an app date, uh, some pass of obscure pass. But if you find the, the VHDX, save, save it as much as you can, like maybe once a week or do a sort of backup. That's a very good segue. I'm not paid by them, but they are friends. So there's Raft WSL created by Penguin Group. So it's a paid solution, but you can run it for two weeks, for example, to have a glimpse. And for example, if I take Ubuntu, they have the solution directly to actually take a snapshot. So you take a snapshot and it will actually save all my data into this snapshot. So now you kind of more safe. That's part of the so it's called Raft. You can find it on the Windows Store. It's 14 bucks a year, I think, but worse. Do you know if in the background, each one of these distros is its own VHDX file or is this all yes. captured? No, no, they have all, yeah. Good question. I have the distro ones, but I have the custom ones and the custom ones, I put them all in the same place. So I tend to myself to create a slash WSL distros, okay? And it will create every time that you import. Okay. So yes. And that's why I tend, and that's just me. That's not really, let's say a best practice or anything, but I tend to import my distros myself because I know where I put them and any case I can simply like save them. And the best thing is now 
very shortly is now that you can import distros based on VHDX also. So you can export it in VHDX yeah. and then re-import it as a VHDX. Yeah. I mean, in general, because I was watching that little raft or whatever it was, and I was thinking, you know, in the background, we've had this the Windows file system snapshotter for a long time. If these are just VHDX files, like there should be a, there's probably someone who's created a gist on like a couple of the commands that would easily snapshot, export, uh, and yeah, so it, it's all but probably actually, there. Yeah. If you do export, you can export directly the VHD. So you can make like with WSL now, you are able to do WSL dash dash export, which distro, your file name or dash dash VHD, your file name. And then if something goes wrong, you can import it. Nice. Yeah. It's getting easier. Oh yeah. And there's a, there was a question of, I see people all saying, yeah, <laughs> I've destroyed my, I've destroyed my distro. I've messed up. You know, it's happened. It, this happens. No chance. Right? We, yeah. It happens all the time to me where I'm in a container. I'm messing around and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to leave this right here and I'll come back later. And then Docker comes out and says, Hey, we need you all to test a new beta. And then I just do a system clean and I'm like, oh yeah, I lost it. I lost it all. Yeah. I don't usually oh, yeah. lose the source code, but whatever I was working on, it was built. I've done that too. There is that risk, but you know, I would hope that nowadays, like WSL2 has been out for a while now. I'd hope that if any of us had like enterprise or cloud-based backup tools that for Windows, I would hope that those would at least support. Yeah, but so. that's something that don't people don't really think about. That's the problem mm -hmm. is like, again, it's an OS inside an OS kind of. So you have to still think a little bit more about how to save it, your tooling. That's why, and again, I really recommend you to save the VHD and continue working on WSL rather than starting to actually move your all your work files into the Windows file system. For now, at least. Okay. Because that's one thing is like, once you lose once or even twice your distro, then you start getting frustrated because you lost files, you lost configurations, whatever. So what you do is like, you try to move out of WSL for your files and that's a bad calculation in the long term. Yeah. And another question though, is there, is it a way from one distro to create multiple WSL distros? I don't know how to ask that question even. Basically there So yeah, no, no, you can, you can, but it's the name. Two different Ubuntu's of the same version. Exactly. The store, so but yeah, the store yeah, doesn't make this so, obvious. The store kind of. No. So via the store, you cannot really, the only thing that you can do with Ubuntu is like install Ubuntu itself without the name and which is 2204 right now. And then you install Ubuntu 2204, which has another name actually. And because the, you cannot install twice the same name actually. So let's say Wolfie, like if I try to re-import Wolfie as it is, as I did before, it will say like, oh, no, no shot. Like you have a distro that has already the same name. However, with exactly the same file in a different directory that just for a better management, but with a different name. So if I import it, it will import it. So it's really separated, but the right. naming is really important. The naming here is the one thing. I see what you're saying. So it's really just, it's a, it's kind of like Docker containers can't have two with the same name and it's just not giving us that option in the store, but we can easily do it from the command line by X. Was that it? Is that essentially what you're doing with importing and export? So at first someone would have yeah. to export their current one and then re-import exactly. it? Okay. Exactly. So if I search for Ubuntu, then you will have Ubuntu itself without any other naming, but then I have the 2204.2 LTS. Okay. That it's not installed, but that's exactly the same actually. Yeah, I always, I mean, I don't know if it's true, but I always looked at the Ubuntu one as like, that didn't have a version number. That was basically whatever the most recent LTS is, is what LTS, you're yes. Yeah, it's, it's and basically- Ubuntu Preview it, is the latest one. Yeah, okay. That's, so, okay, enough about the Ubuntu and the WSL. We, I think we've done, they had great questions, people. This is actually a, a kind of an interesting dive into the understanding of WSL, because the reality is if you're working in this thing all day, like you really want, to understand some of the nuances and the management. And I didn't know about the backup feature through export or the tool you mentioned. 
But one of the other things we wanted to talk about was sort of now the rich ecosystem and options we have, not just Docker Desktop, which I, is still my favorite. It's still great. It's still the one I install on every single Mac, Windows, Linux desktop I have. But we have these other ones. So we have this spreadsheet that you've been helping out with. And the purpose of this spreadsheet was really to, one, to showcase how much Docker Desktop does, because <laughs> it does a ton of things. Yep. You can see every feature I've added. It doesn't mean that, I mean, there's probably other features that are that exist in all these products that I'm not listing. But also to show what other options there are besides Docker Desktop, if you just want to play around, if you are not allowed to run Docker Desktop due to licensing reasons, or you work at an enterprise that would have to pay for it, or you're someone who's just interested in other technologies, like you are a Podman person and Podman Desktop even can run extensions from, like from Docker Desktop. It can do the same thing. So, you know, and we've got Rancher Desktop has been around a long time. It allows you to do some things like control Kubernetes versions and stuff that Docker Desktop yep. can't do is can you change Kubernetes versions and you can't in Docker Desktop, but you can in Rancher Desktop. So check out, for those that haven't done, nope, check out that spreadsheet. You can add comments. If you're someone who knows a tool really well in this list, or if you happen to know of a tool that's not in this list, we're focusing on local container runtimes to allow you to run a container, which may or may not be Docker or Kubernetes. It could be Cryo, Container D, you know, Podman, any way to run a container. Mm -hmm on your local system. This isn't for production. This isn't Kubernetes runtimes. This isn't CRI specifically. This is how can I run containers locally on my host, my physical machine? And we have an increasingly <laughs> large growing list. A lot of people are fans of Lima and Nerd Control made yeah. by the same people that also maintain Docker and Moby. You know, a lot of us have heard of Multipass and Minikube and Podman. We now, since the last time you and I hung out, we now have Podman Desktop. So I just wanted to like warm us up to the idea that there's all these other options. We have we have Rancher Desktop. For, we've had that for a while now. And I have all these installed locally on my machine. I check them out every once in a while. I admit I have a creature of a habit. So I was using Docker Desktop long, long before all these. So I tend to still use Docker Desktop. But we're going to talk about some of the stuff. We You know, there is tons in Docker Desktop that we can talk about. But we also just want to highlight some of the other ones. So let's go. Let's go. So the first one, I will, I will finish with Docker desktop. So Podman desktop arrived this year or last year. Maybe a small story behind is that someone else from the community created actually the Podman companion, I think it was called and was really nice. And then the team behind Podman actually created an official Podman desktop months after it. So it, the interface seems quite the same. So they might work actually with the lead developer of the other solution. You can run containers. Podman is something maybe people don't really realize, but was created also for running pods locally, not in on Kubernetes by itself. So you can run pods directly with Podman, which is quite nice. Then you have images and then uh, the volumes. And in terms of settings, they have good settings, but seems a bit more archaic compared to the other two that we'll see just after. It's more like, yeah, pure developer <laughs> interface. You have to know exactly what you have to enter somewhere. Right. Like right. there's no menus, there's no nothing. So. But yeah, but still really good. You have the Podman machine, which is the actually the one that is really working behind the scenes. So since Podman 4, Podman machine is aware of WSL. So you can run Podman machine and create uh, actually a new machine. I like Podman and the team behind, I know like one of the developers behind really helpful and always like wanting to help. So uh, hi, I don't yeah. remember his name, but yeah, he's really cool. Yeah. And so, like you said, the one thing is that it can run Docker desktop extensions. I tried it couple of them, but sometimes it doesn't really work well because Podman, even though it's like, can run Docker commands, it's not hundred percent compatible. So right. I tried sneak because I wanted to showcase it from here and it simply didn't work because it doesn't understand the JSON outputs, for example. So, yeah. so yeah. your mileage may vary is what we would say on extensions, but it's just cool that they actually added that. I was impressed when I first saw that it can kind of like how there's all these variants of VS code that comes from the under underlying VS code, open source repos. And so we have the branded VS code, and then there's like all these variants and they can all still use the same extensions as that VS code can use, or at least most of them. And so it's similar here where it's, 
there is Docker API compatibility for sure. And then there's also like an extension API that is probably not hundred percent coverage as Podman as well, as well, but it's just, it's nice that they're even trying that yeah. because it, um, instead of inventing their own solution. Yeah. True. The fact that true. we're running, I by mean, the way, a Red Hat GUI, we're running Red Hat software or Red Hat sponsored software on Windows. The fact that that's even a thing is actually pretty cool because Podman and everything else Red Hat is traditionally very Linux only. So you're not going to get a lot of support to run those tools on Windows, especially not mm -hmm. in the GUI. So this is actually a pretty rare, in my experience, a pretty rare occasion for Red Hat. So don't quote me there, but I saw kind of the past, like going from, there was like this Podman machine connectivity, like you had the kind of the GUI. So it's using like, it was using Podman machine, but like as a remote UI, if you want. So it was connecting there and then suddenly Podman machine became aware of WSL. And finally, now we have Podman desktop. So yeah, but. Definitely, like that's why Red Hat for me is sometimes a bit of mystery. I don't know them. Don't have the world history. No, neither. I came after everything. Mm -hmm. Maybe uh, happened. So I like Red Hat. I like their product. But sometimes it's like, yeah, they don't follow like the standards, or they create something on the side and they try it all the time. So they are I innovating in their way. So that's quite cool. Anyway, Rancher Desktop by Zusa. Rancher. So this one, okay, I'm biased, right? Like I said, I work for them. I actually write the docs for them. So I'm a bit biased here, but it's the, let's say, it's the tool that I use now every day at work. I still use a lot Docker desktop because that's Docker desktop still for me leads in terms of container purely leads the way in innovation. Rancher desktop for me will, and leads a little bit, but will lead really like on the Kubernetes front, really about like this, you can do almost everything that you want with containers, but on top of it and majority, let's say we do have this Kubernetes front there. So we have like images as before, but by default, for example, we can also scan them. Something that Podman didn't do is like Podman doesn't integrate with any WSL. So you have to work on PowerShell. So there's no exporting commands, sharing commands like Docker desktop and Rancher desktop does. Okay. The tooling behind of Rancher desktop consists of if you have the container engine switch to Docker deep where you can extend the power of the Rancher desktop to a multi-node. But the thing is, if you are running container D, you will have nerd DCTL, the tool that you have with Lima. Okay. And that will be nerd DCTL, 3V, container D, of course, behind the scenes and another one. Yeah. Lima. And then you can swap the container engine. The mm -hmm. fun thing here, which I like very much is that Rancher desktop reach. It's like still challenger compared to uh, Docker desktop in terms of features on the purely container environment. Okay. But at the same time, from the beginning, it was like the three OSs were targeted and the two container engines were also there already. So now that Docker desktop did it also, now finally we can see like, okay, they see potentially, I don't know, someone as a, a bit challenging, but like not in a bad way, but like a good competitor, like a same competitor. And then Docker desktop also brought like the dual engine. And one thing that you said before, we can actually swap the Kubernetes versions, which is kind of cool. One last thing here, there's the allow the images for now it's experimental, but for example, you can just allow certain images to be pulled. So Docker has it, but for the enterprise solution. The way that I actually kind of perceive these, the Docker desktop versus Rancher desktop discussion is like Docker desktop is kind of meant to just, you, you install it and a lot of its settings and, and functionality is sort of like a developer focused workflow, things like which extensions you want to add and, yeah. you know, maybe do you want this to start? I mean, it's got, it's all these things that are sort of like a developer that has an awareness of containers, but Rancher desktop is like, the tool for someone who really wants to dig in and be involved with containers. They want to try a different command line. They want to swap their runtime in the back end. They want to change their Kubernetes version. These are all things you can't do in Docker Desktop because Docker Desktop is just trying to give you the happy path approach of, hey, this is everything you know and love, and we just do it all in one shot. And then Rancher Desktop's like, 
we allow you to toggle all these different knobs that some people just don't care about, right? They just want Docker. They want Docker engine on the running on the background. They want to use Docker Compose. They want the latest version of Compose and Docker all just built together. And that's Docker Desktop. But to me, Rancher Desktop, whenever I want to run like my most popular use for Rancher Desktop, even though I've still got Docker Desktop running, is when a student says, I'm having an issue with this lecture on Kubernetes 1.22 or whatever. Yeah. And I, sure, I can exactly. run it in K3D. I can, there's all these ways I could spin it up. But Rancher Desktop GUI is just so easy for me to go, boop, drop the, have the drop down, pick <laughs> the version, it installs it, you know, a minute later, I'm ready to go. And But yeah. I, I think you nailed it. And it was already said the last time. And thank you for repeating it. I'm employee and I'm captain at the same time. So I have this yeah. split personality, right? But anyway, so the thing is, I truly foresee use cases on, okay, of course, that's a Veeam event the diagram where you will have like the middle that will be crossover. But I, like you said, one, you use the developer comes in and there's an abstraction, a full abstraction of what is working behind. I have to click some buttons and I have my environment working, Docker desktop. The other one, it's more like, okay, here is the tooling that you don't have to care no more about. We provide you the tooling. We provide you with some actually features on the UI, but you will have to go through CLI. Docker desktop nowadays, potentially you can run compost yeah. files. You can have the dev environments. You can scan files without even touching a command line. So yeah. you just touch your code and that's it. So it's really focused to the developer to the really the almost the extreme and yeah all this abstraction is a huge innovation a huge development we take maybe it for granted i don't like the more abstracted it is the more thoughts was put into it rancher desktop hopefully will become exactly the same for the kubernetes worlds where you don't you abstract kubernetes fully and you can just develop and push to kubernetes and the thing here is you have to understand, like, we have an end-to-end -end mindset, like the same for Docker in terms of developer. Here is more in terms of Kubernetes, where the mindset is that in production, you have a version, a specific version. You don't have latest. That's a no-no. Okay. So here you can pinpoint exactly the same Kubernetes version, develop for that version, debug on that version, and then push to the same version that is running in production. So it's more an end-to-end mindset around Kubernetes, more likely. And you can run also like Docker and container D stuff. But for me, it's like how I like to present it, where paths will diverge from one and the other. But anyway. Yeah. Hey there, podcast listener. At this point in the live show, which this podcast comes from, we do a pretty detailed demo getting into a lot of the features and it didn't necessarily make sense to put this in an audio only podcast. So if you're interested more in the tool and how it functions, check out a link in the show note that will take you to the YouTube live that this comes from, and then you can get the full demo there. We're now going to jump back into the conversation after we're done with most of that demo. So I can run also containers. It's like the latest versions. That's really important. Windows is kind of picky. But the latest version of Docker desktop on Windows with the Windows engine can run process mode also. Yeah, and this is something that's been going on for a while too, right? If you go back in time, actually, because Microsoft Service started offering process, yeah. process and Hyper-V isolation in Windows Server 2016, if I can remember my dates correctly. And that wasn't originally even an option on Windows desktop. We could not do process isolation. We always had to run things on Windows inside a Hyper-V VM that exactly. was running core or whatever. If you need to run Windows binaries in Windows containers and you don't want to have to yeah. run an entire VM in the background with, you know, the one or two gig OS download and all that, you can actually avoid that with this processor mode, right? Or isolation, exactly. processor isolation. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So again, you need to be careful when it's process isolation. So it's still a container, but you are kind of in the outside now. So it's almost like if you want mode. pure isolation, yeah, you should run the normal isolation, which is Hyper-V. 
And Microsoft documentation, the last I checked, it was a couple of years ago. But there's actually good documentation that Microsoft explains Hyper-V versus process isolation. So you can probably just Google around but processor versus Hyper-V isolation. I've done that multiple times over the last half a decade. And you get a sense of what Microsoft's trying to accomplish. This is actually something that Linux doesn't do. This is actually something that Microsoft invented for containers on Windows, where they allowed you to have better isolation, which we can technically now do that in Linux with different container runtimes. And but in Windows, it kind of kind of kind of comes out of the box. And it tends, I think, it tends to default to Hyper-V isolation. But I, can't you change the? I think you could change the default. Actually, at least you could. So I have on Windows, and that's how I want to finish. I have the possibility to have Linux containers, Windows containers at the same time. And thanks to ContainerD now, I can also have the WASM containers all at once. So the three types, because technically WASM containers are a different type of container that require a different part of the runtime, a, a, a shim, which we've, which for those that are interested in WASM, we did a great show here. Just search exactly. WASM, Brett Fisher or something, and you'll find Nigel Poulton on the show. And we went through some, like, what is WASM? Why do we care about it? And that's actually, it's a good point that you're, you're basically running to date the three different platform options, or I guess the three different OS options that we have. In fact, if people, if you think about it for a minute, we've always had this dash dash platform option, or at least for a very long time in Docker. And that allows you a platform in Docker, we should say, is a combination of the hardware chipset. So like ARM or Intel or mainframe or X, you know, 386 or whatever, and then the OS that's running on that hardware. So whenever you do a Docker run on Linux, you're actually getting this platform decision and it all happens in the background and it's kind of magical. And it just defaults to whatever the engine is running on. If the engine's running on x86, it's going to download an x86-64 image and it's going to be in a Linux binary compatible format. But we don't realize it in the background, if you're doing a Windows container, it's then a, you know, x86-64 slash Windows, or actually it's the other way around, right? It's Windows slash x86-64 or AMD-64 for most Windows people. But now we have this new one, WASM slash WASI32, I believe is the platform name in there, right? Yeah. And it's, Wasi, and it's Wasm. yeah, you're like super bleeding edge on this. So I'm appreciating us ending on the bleeding edge note. Because this is all like happening in real time. I'm kind of, I'm stealing a little bit of your thunder. Sorry. I know you were going to probably explain Wasm for no, a no. second, but. Um, oh, no, no, no. I don't, I don't. Yeah. I know I can run it. So I'm not a dev, like I said, all the time. I know that I can play with it. So definitely it's something that we should like bring, test it. And here again, if I want, I can create another context going when I'm in Linux now, I can create a context and go back to Windows also because the containers are potentially running and everything. So now the good thing is like, I can arrest some Docker devs to have container D on windows, hopefully as we have, because Wasm, I have plenty of questions that are not really answered, but I will keep it for another show. And again, just, I hope like the windows side, how it grew up to be, you can really do whatever you want. Almost it's really like the. For me, the message I wanted to convey today is like WSL2 is here to, let's say, let us copy and run the Linux demos that we see everywhere. I'm fighting for docs since a long time now to be more Windows inclusive. I'll get there someday, but anyway, and the thing is like, we, what I like is that in terms of development, neither like Rancher with RKE2, actually, they are leading front on Kubernetes windows, nor Docker, nor Microsoft are forgetting windows as a platform, not just to run Linux containerized on WSL2, like workloads, containerized workloads. They're still developing windows and people in some companies, they need that. So it's still there. Don't be afraid. And by the way, the dual context is supported by Docker whatsoever. So if you have some bugs, I think you have a better chance to potentially come to me or to Vinicius, the other, let's say, oriented Microsoft captain working at Microsoft, even better. But the thing is like, you can do everything you want on Windows, if I can end like that. Yeah, that's a perfect ending. So we're both on Twitter. You can get our Twitter handles below. 
we both hang out in the Docker captains chat. So if you have Docker questions, if you have rancher questions, if you have questions or SUSE or however I'm saying it wrong, if you have WSL questions, Nuno's out there, find him on Twitter. I'm assuming you're on Mastodon as well now. Yep. On and, Hatchy and, Derm, but yeah, it's yeah, unique yeah, Hatchy Derm. Yeah, we're all hanging out on a HatchyDerm server. So, and then we're in the Slack for Docker community. If you know what that is, find us there. If not, we're also in, at least I am. I'm not sure. I don't actually know if Nuno's got an account yet, but the DevOps.fan Discord server, if you didn't know about I'm that, that's there. Yeah, there's 12,000 people hanging out in there. Not all at the same time, but that would be a lot of chat. But there's DevOps people there all the time hanging out. I spend more and more, more of my time there lately as the conversations have gotten really good lately and it's really interesting stuff. So if you're into containers, if you're into DevOps cloud native way of doing things, come hang out with us on the Discord server. So thanks again, sir. It is great to have you as always. I'm always Thank learning you. stuff. I'm always, I'm always <laughs> learning stuff from you. And every time you get me one, you know, a couple of feet closer to changing my whole life and going back to Windows. And I didn't even show you like uh, the last time I did it. So you can go back to the, the last one. But remember, you can do GUI apps on containers running on Windows directly. Yeah. Also. So we did show like you did show us a Linux terminal GUI in coming from WSL, but you didn't show us a, a GUI inside of a container, which can also be on Windows. And yeah, we go, look up Nuno and Brett on YouTube and find our show from a year like 2021. And he was showing that off. It was, it was pretty slick. So we will, of course, have you on again in the future. It's always good to catch up and to learn all the latest stuff in WSL and all the Corsair hacking you do. So thanks again, everyone. And ciao. Thanks, Nuno. See you soon. Hi, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll see you in the next episode.